0: I think I've said this before, when I was in seminary, uh, everybody tells you that your second year in seminary is the worst. And uh, it was for me. And I remember uh, I had gotten into a place in the Wisconsin bush where my seminary was, where the trees were bare and the ice was thick. And I was giving consideration to just packing this baby in. And uh, so I... Was, uh, we went to church three times a day at Neshota House, and uh, as we marched in uh, for even song uh, and said the opening sentences and everything, we sat for the, to sing the psalm, and the psalm was, Lord, remember David and all the troubles he endured. <laughs> and so at the time, I thought, well, if I hadn't been in there, I wouldn't have heard it, Right. <laughs> So it was an affirmation of what the the great teachers on the spiritual life in the Christian church have said, and that is, when you feel a little dry, you have to persevere, and that's an important thing to to keep in mind. Also, the next thing that I did not intend to preach on, but just listening to it being read again, uh, serves uh, the opportunity to say what I've said many times before. The book of Revelation is not predictive of anything in the future the book of Revelation is about events that at the time of the writing had already occurred. So it's talking about a, a fait accompli, the circumstances in which the writer found himself with, with regard to the relationship between Christian people and the Roman Empire and all of the dire predictions actually had already happened. Now everybody doesn't agree with that, obviously, and there's more than one point of view Uh, even in biblical scholarship. But uh, G.B. Caird, who was a uh, biblical scholar who died in the early 1980s, wrote a book called The Revelation of St. John the Divine, which is one of the books that that drives home very clearly uh, that reality, that understanding of the book of Revelation. So bear that in mind When if somebody wants to tell you some crackpot thing about the book of Revelation or you watch one of those shows on A&E or one of the other ones about the book of Revelation or everything, just keep that, just keep that in mind. Uh, there's a solid body of, of uh, uh, scholarly evidence that supports the fact <laughs> that this is what this book is all about. And all the people who were alive then knew it was about that. They understood all those symbols, you know. So when you, when you got a, a, a lamb with seven eyes and a bunch of other that needs some unpacking. <laughs> <laughs> Today is the Feast of Christ the King or Christ the King in the Episcopal Church the last Sunday after Pentecost or Christ the King. So Episc- Episcopalians being uh, people of the middle way, do not directly, are not required everywhere to celebrate the Feast of Christ the King. However, the readings and the collect, the introductory prayer that we read or sing is in fact the prayer for Christ the King. So it is clear that in the Roman Catholic Church, the Episcopal Church, and in the Lutheran Church, or some Lutheran churches, Christ the King is celebrated on an annual basis. It was promulgated, which is the old-fashioned language, in 1925 by Pope Pius XI, and it used to be celebrated on the last Sunday of October. And in 1970, when Paul VI was Pope, he trans—he moved the feast to the last Sunday after Pentecost. So since that time, for about 42 years, we have been celebrating Christ the King on that Sunday. The person in power in Italy in 1925 was Mussolini. And so there was a point about the kingship of Christ that uh, was being driven home by the church in terms of where people's ultimate loyalties should lie or lay. Lie. Whichever one is right. Lie. Thank you. So... um, Here's the thing in the United States. We're not big on kings. Kings do not loom large in our sort of list of, ooh. Although, when the Revolutionary War ended, there were some people who wanted, Alexander Hamilton, for example, wanted to make Washington a king. There are a lot of people even then who thought, well, if you don't have a king or a queen, you don't have it, you're not anything, so you need to have one. And fortunately, Washington had the presence of mind to refuse uh, being made king, although he behaved the entire time like he was a king. Right? <laughs> he would never shake hands. He would stand like this. Okay. So when you came by him, I guess say, "Oh, Mr. President," sort sure, of oh, moved on. No hand, no handshaking. But kings are not big. So I think the better term, which has crept into the church. Uh, Liturgical life and uh, other kinds of things is the reign of Christ, which really has to do with uh, being living in an atmosphere or a field of uh, God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. And by virtue of that, understanding in some way that we are participants in the reign of Christ and have a responsibility uh, to advance the principles of the reign of Christ. And this is a a day when we affirm that reality and say that it's very, very important. I was thinking, uh, there's a book that I'm reading now. I should have started it earlier so I would have been ready uh, to write this sermon with it. But it's by N.T. Wright. And the title of the book is called How God Became a King. And here's the important point, because this is going to come up in my preaching in the future. Uh, A lot of Christianity, certainly in the United States, and certainly since the Continental Reformation, has not focused for its theological um, development on the Gospels. They focused on the writings of Paul. And there's been a whole lot of abstruse stuff done about Paul and what he meant and all of these kinds of things. And even when the Gospels come into the picture, uh, consistent with this theological outlook in all the churches, is they read the Gospels almost as though you have the introduction, which is the story of of God becoming a human being, the incarnation. And then you have the end of the Gospel, which is the atonement, the cross, and there's a whole lot of stuff in between in all of these gospels which is about how God became king or what kind of a world Jesus was speaking about in terms of what it is that we're supposed to be doing and how are we to be doing it so when we read the gospels we got to focus on the middle part which has a lot to do with issues of economic justice and equity with understanding our role in the divine economy with understanding in some way that God's purposes are being worked out here and not somewhere else. Because a lot of Christianity has been all about getting somewhere else to be able to do this. The kingdom is not here, it's somewhere else. And what I'm going to speak about in in John's Gospel is about the kingdom being here. So Jesus is not, even though you listen to this language about the world, the world is here, and that's the location for where all of this stuff gets uh, worked out in some way or where we begin to understand in a fuller way what our goal is. One of the things that Christ the King celebrates is that the means by which you and I begin to appropriate and understand the reign of Christ is through the sacramental life of the church, through its worship, through baptism, through fulfilling the baptismal covenant. And as we do that week to week, we begin to see just exactly what God's purposes are for us as we live, how we understand that, and what does it mean. So John's gospel today uh, is Jesus before Pilate. And Pilate asks him, uh, are you a king? And uh, if you were to read, he he says, what have other people been telling you about me? (laughs) Is essentially what he says uh, at the beginning. And he says something important. He said, my kingdom is not from this world. Many translations that are very popular used to translate that is, my kingdom is not of this world. So you could construe that as being a kingdom somewhere else. But from this world, uh, it requires understanding certainly what the Johannine community that wrote John's Gospel meant when they talked about world, interpreted through listening to the teaching of Jesus in terms of what he understood about what world meant in that sense. And what they meant was a world organized on the basis of unbelief. Now when I say unbelief, I don't mean this in, an, in, a, in, a, uh, in a way of, we're talking about people with an infinite capacity for skepticism, although that's true in our culture but unbelief has to do with saying I don't, ha- I don't have to believe in anything that's important beyond me I can believe in my own uh, initiative I can believe in the power of my, own, of my own intellect I can believe in what my grandfather referred to as this great economic system we have in this country he called the mainspring of human progress that's pretty good you know, of course, that was also the day we'd go for rides in the car. Yes. You know, this is in 1950s. We'd go for a ride in the car, you know, after dinner. Maybe we'd go to Shaw's and have some ice cream, yeah. right? And then we'd drive, we'd drive around. And Grandpa would look at all the houses and give you a, a continuous narrative about all the people who'd moved down here in the 20s and where, who they were and what they did. And we'd hear all about that kind of thing. But occasionally... Either on the strip zone places in San Mateo or maybe even in some residential areas, we would pass an empty lot. And invariably he would look at that and say, I wonder what they're going to do with that piece of property. (laughs) You get what I'm saying? (laughs) Develop it. The idea of just leaving it there would be, I don't know, (laughs) nervous-making. One time we went, it was during a Saturday, and my grandfather took Eddie and me. We were on a ride, and there was a fire in a house. He loved to go to fires, and we went by the place while the firemen were were putting out the fire. And as we were doing it, a fireman ran into the burning house and came out with an armload of coat hangers. (laughs) This has nothing to do with Christ the King, but it just (laughs) popped into my head. You know what I mean? (laughs) But when we talk about all of these things, uh, unbelief can mean, you know, an overweening sense of the fact that, you know, our technology and our sense of our entrepreneurial zeal and our initiative and our belief that all problems have solutions uh, can become more than is necessary to think about how the world gets worked out, how things get worked out in the world. It's a bitter pill, you know. But then Jesus goes on to speak about not only the world, but he says something about the truth. You know, Pilate asked him at at one point, what is truth? Jesus does not respond But the Johannine community understood truth as uh, the reality of God seen in his revelation and his redemption. What does that mean? It means the slow, steady progress of people coming to the reality that they have a purpose in the world, understood in the affirmative sense. And when they understand that, they begin to become... Contributors to moving the world an inch closer to clicking into place with God's purposes. And the only way that I could explain how you and I might ever see that happen is not through thinking about either great miracles or some kind of magical thinking about how the world or the universe works, but the slow, steady progress you see in your own life, doing some reflection upon what it is you've been through and where you are now, And also seeing the progress that has been made in the improved relationships that you have with other people and they with you. And the resources that you have been able to summon as the result of the practical wisdom that you have acquired over time. Things that you know that are important and that you can commend to other people. And that it has productive results, it produces fruit It is a way of seeing God's presence in the world, you know? It's part of the great mystery, isn't it, that God just doesn't make all this right in one swell foop. And so somehow it must have something to do with us coming uh, to the reality that we can't organize our lives on the basis of unbelief and that we see the truth in small ways most of the time, not in big ways. We don't all have an aha moment, you know, or that sort of thing. I'll say this again probably on epiphany, but, you know, that word has crept into our common vocabulary a lot. Someone will say to you, I've had an epiphany, which means the old ad for the Ford Motor Company, Ford, (coughs) the light bulb comes on, has a better idea. (laughs) Right? (coughs) Has a better idea. Well, sometimes we have that. Sometimes we have a, the light bulb comes on, but a lot of times the progress is made without, or without an epiphany. It comes with uh, the perseverance that is necessary uh, for some sort of um, maturing of the soul in the world, some sort of understanding uh, the importance uh, of God's purposes in your life. Father Thomas Keating says, "This is coming. The come you which- you come to, is the realization that God is not other than you. God is is the same as you. We're one. We are not God, but our true self is God. And so we are able, over time, when we realize that we're not separate, and we can translate that into our human interaction, we believe that we are, in some way, one. Not clumped together, but one. And we begin then to make greater sense out of our own life, you know? All those issues that get stored from childhood, that apparently hide themselves both in our body and in our nervous system, are the things that we ultimately need then to uh, come to discover. And, they f- and you find out they don't have any power over you anymore. They don't have any harm. Have you ever been, and as a kid, one time I went into this house up uh, near Lake Tahoe, and it was an, an old cabin. And I went in there by myself. The door was open, and it just seemed absolutely enormous to me. The counters were, you know, really high. It was dark. It was a, a log cabin. Uh, the floor was kind of all dirty and wrecked, and I was very frightened. <coughs> So I walked around the house and I went out and about 20 years later, I was in Tahoe again and I went by that same cabin and I walked in and I thought, you know, this place is a lot smaller than I. <laughs> <laughs> These cabinets are quite small, they're, they're not, it's not as uh, scary. So once you were able to deal with that, you were able to see, well, that's something I can put behind me uh, without worrying about it, you know. So what we learn when we think about uh, the reign of Christ is that we come now to touch more fully and more deeply our own humanity. So we're going to enter the season where we're awaiting the coming of the Savior, the season of Advent, and it's a time when we think about hopefulness. Somebody once said to me, hope is honesty, openness, persistence, and enthusiasm. So it's a way of living that says uh, we're moving forward. We're going to move forward. And by virtue of that, we're faithful to the reign of Christ. And we understand that Christ is not a dictator or a tyrant. This passage, this today, is not about the judgment of God. It's about God's mercy, and it's about God's unconditional uh, love, acceptance, and forgiveness. So give thanks this week for being part uh, of the reign of Christ and having a responsibility to advance its goals. Amen.